So, question 107, the end of the catechism today. This is the last one, and as I have told you, our next series will be the uh, suggested topic sermon series. So, I've got lots. I got some more suggestions now, and so this this could be a really long series. Um, but looking forward to uh, to doing that. It's always uh, kind of encouraging to know what you want to hear uh, about, and so kind of compiling all those things. I didn't get as much time to work on that this week, but I'll have to do it this week for sure, <laughs> and uh, get started next next Lord's Day, Lord willing. So uh, we came to the last question then here of the, we, we come to the last question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it, it's actually been uh, just over uh, two and a half years now that we've been uh, doing this. So uh, in the last part of the catechism, we've been looking at the means of grace, the means that God uses to connect us to our Savior. That's why we call them means of grace, because we're sinners and we need grace to be able to be connected to the Savior and to our God. And so he uses word, sacraments, and prayer to that end. The inward means, of course, are also essential, which are faith and repentance. So we repent toward God and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he enables us by those means to come to him for um, forgiveness and new life. By faith, we who are under God's condemnation depend on him as the one on Jesus Christ, as the one that God the Father sent to restore us to himself, going to the cross for us and giving us new life. And by repentance, we turn from our old life that was cut off from God in order that we might now follow Christ and therefore follow the Father as the Son would direct us in his ways, giving us new life, giving us the ability to live for him. And then, uh, again, you know, the outward means that God uses to bring us to faith and repentance. Primarily, the, the outward means are the word, sacraments, and prayer. With the word, God tells us how he has sent Jesus to redeem sinners. He gives us promises of redemption for those that trust in him. And he gives us his commandments so that we can know how we're to live. The word is essential for us in order to know our God. With the sacraments, he points us to Christ as the one who washes us so that in getting baptized, we're asking him to wash away our sins according to his promise. And in coming to the Lord's Supper, we're taught to look to him to nourish us. We're looking to him to feed us spiritually. And then with prayer, we're taught to call on the Lord and to rely on his saving work. So we cry out to him in he answers prayers. That's why it's a means of grace. Most recently, we have been studying about prayer and looking at the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Uh, in the preface to the prayer, our Father in heaven, we learn that we are to approach God as a loving Father who desires to help us. That's why he's called Father and who is able to help us. And that's why we say that he's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases from heaven. And then we looked at the six petitions that are in the Lord's Prayer. They cover the matters for which we ought to pray, the petitions that we bring to God. For God's name to be hallowed, that is for his glory to be known. We're here for the glory of God. It's our chief end. For his kingdom to come, that is for his people to be gathered together into Christ, the people that he has chosen from the foundation, before the foundation of the world, for Satan's kingdom to be brought down and destroyed, overthrown. 
for his will to be done on earth. That prayer is going to be answered when God renews and restores everything. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We would live according to God's will. We want to do that more and more now. For God to provide for our daily needs, to give us our daily portion of the good things of this life. We pray for him to forgive our sins. Even after we have come to Christ and been forgiven, we saw that every day we need to ask this. As we say, give us this day our daily bread, that day idea carries over with forgiveness as well. We need forgiveness each day because we commit sins every day. We come short of the glory of God. And then uh, finally, for him to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. We want to serve God instead of sin. And now today, we come to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, and it is found in Matthew 6, 13. Some of you may have it in the margin of your Bibles, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it reads as follows, For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Question 107 is the question in the Catechism that deals with the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. So let's confess the answer to this question together. Question 107. What doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teacheth us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only. And in our prayers to praise Him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to Him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, Amen. Now, what does it mean by taking our encouragement in prayer from God only? It means that you recognize that no one but God can answer your prayers. He is the one who decides everything that happens. You can ask other people for things, but ultimately it is God who determines what happens. And seeing that you're to pray to him as if everything depends on him. Why? Because everything does depend on him. So we need to, we need to pray that way. And because this is so, you're to praise him as the one upon whom everything desires We're to look at what it means that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's really what it's about, that everything is in his hands. His is the power. His is the kingdom. Nobody else has power unless God gives it to them. And then we'll look at how we use the word amen to testify to God that, that we indeed want him to do the things that we have prayed and are sure that he will do those things. That he has heard us. So in considering this conclusion, I want you to consider in the first place that this is a very fitting conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. But does it belong in our Bibles? I told you we would get to that in a minute. It's not in some of your Bibles because it's not in some of the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Bible. It's in most of them, but it's not in all of them. There are a few passages in the Bible that are like this. As you know, when the Bible was written, they did not have printing presses, so every Bible was written by hand. That means that sometimes mistakes were made when the copies were being made. And then a copy that had a mistake in it would be taken to another place, 
and then that one would be copied and the copy would be reproduced and there would be a whole family of texts from that region that would have the same error reproduced in it again and again. It's easy to see how a whole sentence or even a whole passage could be either deleted or added. And it could be left out of a copy that maybe there could be a missing page or something like that. Or if a person doing the copy skips something, which, as you know, is very easy to do if you've ever copied things by hand. In fact, even a whole group of copyists can make that mistake if somebody was dictating to them and left something out uh, by accident. Then you can see how various things would um, there would be some variations And something could be added deliberately also in a margin as a marginal uh, note. And then it could end up being incorporated into the text itself. What is remarkable and what we need to recognize is nearly astonishing, really, when we compare it to other ancient manuscripts, is that God shows his gracious hand of providence in preserving the text of the Bible for us. It's the, the, and even the nature of the variations that we have are not significant. First of all, there are so few, so few compared to any other ancient texts we have. And it is obvious that the copyists then were very careful indeed and that God was preserving his word for us so that we could be sure that we have the word of God. Perhaps even more remarkable, though, is the fact that there are no variations in the text that would either add to or contradict anything that is in the Bible, unless it's some really rogue version that is obviously perverted. But in the overall family of all the manuscripts that we have, the ones that have been reproduced, you know, now, of course, there are such variations found in copies that were deliberately tampered with. So you see, but there is no such variation that made it into the copies that were widely distributed. That's what I'm saying. There are two reasons that we can be confident then that we have the true word of God today. The first reason is because God promised that he would preserve his word. He is sovereign and he is able to work through history to be sure that his word is not corrupted. And the truth is that it has not been corrupted. We can see that when we compare the different manuscripts. And the second reason we can be confident is because we can see that the Bible is not corrupted. When we we look at the manuscript copies, so first of all, because he said it wouldn't be, and secondly, because we can see that it wasn't. When we look at the copies from all over the world, we can see those minor variations that I was talking about, like maybe a verse that where there were a similar verse in Colossians and Ephesians, and they, they picked up the extra words that were, in the, that were in Colossians that weren't in Ephesians and the Ephesians text, and then it got carried over to another place, and then this other country doesn't have it. You, you have that kind, of, that, that kind of thing. But we can easily detect that there are no major variations, that we have pure copies of the original text. And those uh, copying the Bible, if those copying the Bible had made deliberate revisions, then in the copies that went into various parts of the world would contradict each other, wouldn't they? I mean, if that was the thing that they were doing is making deliberate changes, then the ones in one part of the world wouldn't agree with the ones in another part of the world. 
they would all have their own differences and their own kind of uh, philosophy and everything. But it's not that way at all. We have, the, uh, we have it clear that we can look back and see clearly what is the original. So what can we say about this particular variation to the Lord's Prayer that is found in some manuscript families, but not in others? Was it in the original or was it not? Some Bible versions, like the English Standard Version, tend to favor the older manuscripts. And others, like the New King James that I uh, preach from, tend to favor the majority of manuscripts that we have. The reason for looking at the majority is that these represent the ones that were copied the most. While some of the manuscripts that are older perhaps survive longer only because they were not even considered very good copies and nobody reproduced them. In other words, if you're not handling it and you're not using it, it's kind of set off to the side. Some of them, some of the really oldest manuscripts we have appear to have more or less been tossed in the garbage bin. And that's why they preserve so long because, you know, the place uh, collapsed or whatever and it's down there in the garbage and you get it out. and Oh, here, here's a really ancient manuscript. Yeah, but it's got a bunch of scribbles on it. It's got a lot, of, you know, it's not as, it's obviously not as, even though it's old. If you have a whole lot of copies that are the same but are more recent, see, a whole lot that are the same, that means that they came out of the same, you can see what the original one was. So where there's a whole bunch of manuscripts, you can take and go back and say, okay, this points to an older source because these that are in different parts of the world all go back to the very, very same source. Uh, They were produced from a more ancient source. It's a very complicated science, and I'm certainly not an expert. But the thing that you need to keep in mind is that the variations that we're talking about are quite insignificant. So with the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, it seems likely that it was added to the original text of Matthew, but very early on. We have manuscript evidence that this conclusion was used in the prayers of the church even in the first century. That means that it likely was inserted as a marginal reading. They didn't have margins like we do, but perhaps it was bracketed and then became a part of the text. That could be how it came in. But under God's providence, this can even be seen as something that the Holy Spirit deliberately added for future ages. You see, the Holy Spirit in giving us the Scriptures is not limited to only what the first writer included. That's an artificial thing to think that it had to be what the original writer worked in it wrote, and if somebody added something else, it can't be from the Spirit. For example, when the first copies of Deuteronomy were written by the hand of Moses, there were some things, such as the record of Moses' death, that were probably not included by Moses, unless he got some kind of weird prophecy about exactly how that was going to come about. Those things were added by a person working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who became part of the Holy Scriptures. Someone like Ezra, you know, who could write under inspiration, and he's adding these things. There would have been a time when you would have had copies then 
that Moses had written and you would, that didn't have those additions, and then you would have the ones that were written later that included those additions. Does that mean that the additions are not part of the Holy Word of God? No, I think it means that they are part of it. Remember, the, the whole Bible wasn't even complete yet. And so obviously, over time, you're bringing the Bible together, and there's different books that are yet, whole books that are yet to be added. So uh, they didn't reach their final state until God, in God's providence, this was brought about. Now, when the Psalms were compiled, they were organized into five different books. As you know, even in our Psalter, it has it in the beginning, it's book one, book two, book three, four, five. And uh, we've been singing one of, the, one of the benedictions that was added to the, each of those books is concluded with a benediction. Let me explain what I mean. So you, you, at the end of the, the first four books, Psalm 41, Psalm 72, and Psalm 89, and Psalm 106 are the conclusion to book one, two, three, and four. And each of those has a benediction that was added later. It wasn't written by David, that benediction. It was written by whoever compiled the Psalter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit later, and it was added, and it is part of the Word of God, just as much as what was written by David's hand or Moses or whoever wrote the psalm that we're looking at. So we cannot say for sure that the Holy Spirit authoritatively added the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, but we can say for sure that God in His providence allowed it and that that it's been used very widely and very early. And what is perhaps even more important, we can say that this variation is true to what we know elsewhere in Scripture. And that's the way all these variations are. They're not, they're not telling us something that we don't have elsewhere. So it's a suitable way to conclude our prayers because the same essential content is found in 1 Chronicles 29 that we read earlier. That enables us to say with confidence that the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer contains sentiments that we ought to have to boost our confidence in prayer because it has the same sentiments as we find in First uh, Chronicles 29. Look at how David, who spoke by the Spirit of Christ, used these same truths about God's kingdom, power, and glory as an encouragement in his own prayers, First Chronicles 29. When David prayed this prayer, he was in a time of transition. Looking back, he could see how God had raised up the kingdom of Israel just as God had promised. It didn't look like that, that was going to happen very well for a time. David knew that everything from the deliverance out of Egypt to the complete conquest of Canaan to their preservation from sin and idolatry was all by the hand of God's mighty power. It was God's kingdom, God's power, and it was for God's glory. If you look at First Chronicles 29, you can see these things and more. Look in verses 10 and 11. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. For yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Here you have all the components that are in, the, in our conclusion and more. God is blessed forever and ever, and His is the power and the glory and the kingdom. David even recognized that it was God who had given him and the people a heart to serve God as His people. Everything comes from you, Lord. 
is what David is recognizing to motivate and encourage in prayer. It all belongs to God. And that's what makes him so confident then about the future. Okay, he sees in the past, it's all from God. So the future, he's confident of what God will do in the future. Looking forward, David knew that God had made even greater promises about the future of the kingdom, far greater. So that what had been done so far was, as he said about his own house, but a small thing compared to what you have said you're going to do. David had been promised that his son, a future son, would sit on God's throne forever. Not just for the reign of a a lifespan, but forever and ever. The son would be an everlasting king who who would be perfectly righteous and who would completely abolish all of God's enemies and establish his people. Even death would be abolished by him. And because David could see that God was the greatness and the power and the glory and the kingdom, he was confident to pray for such things. God is able to do such things. And therefore, he prayed them. Look at verses 18 and 19. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. He drew encouragement in prayer from the fact that God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now, I want you to consider each of these uh, is how they are able to give you confidence in your prayer. So let's break them down now. First, God's is the kingdom. When David said this, it was understood that God owned the kingdom. It was the kingdom of God. It was not the kingdom of David, ultimately. He had made the promises to establish this kingdom of righteousness in a sinful world for, through his people Israel. We're fallen into sin. And God had promised that he would put enmity in the hearts of his people that he called the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. This enmity or hatred was a blessing that they would be against the serpent that they had brought, been brought into league with in rebellion against God. They would cease to be in league with Satan and be against him. That was a marvelous promise of God. He was going to establish a people who were not joined together to do what Satan wanted, but were against Satan. I'll put enmity, he said, between you and the serpent's seed, your seed and the serpent's seed. So this enmity would be a blessing. It would be by God's deliverance. He would deliver his people from bondage to sin so they could serve him. Egypt is a type of that. They're brought out of slavery and bondage in order to serve God. As David says in 1 Chronicles 29, God had given both David, the anointed king, and the people willing hearts to serve God and to look for his kingdom to come. Why did they have willing hearts for that? Because of God's power, because God had delivered them. God had promised to bring a son to David, as I already mentioned, that would reign forever on David's throne. Even a king that would be David's Lord and that would sit on God's right hand and also be a priest who would atone for sin. In other words, he would establish God's kingdom of righteousness as a kingdom that would endure forever and ever, in which people would be fully restored to God. So it was God's kingdom in the sense that God would establish it. But now we understand that the kingdom is even more his kingdom. Because now that Jesus, his son, has come, and he, that he himself is actually the righteous king, Jesus himself, we could say, is even the kingdom. 
Like, we are part of his body, and that is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. When he came, John the Baptist went about declaring and announcing that the kingdom of God had come. Why? Because the king had come. The kingdom was there because Jesus was there. It truly had come at that point. Before Jesus came, there was no true kingdom of righteousness in the world. There were a people that were part of that, that were looking for the promises that God regarded as his people. But when Jesus came, a kingdom of righteousness was established in a world that had no kingdom of righteousness. Because there had never been another righteous person until Jesus Christ came. There had never been an atonement for sin until Jesus came and atoned for sin. And we are part of that glorious eternal kingdom that is blessed forever and ever. We become part of it when we come to Jesus and when we receive through him new life and the forgiveness of sins. He takes care of everything. We depend on him from changing our hearts by his Holy Spirit to continually renewing us in that change that has been made until we're brought to perfection. And uh, these things are being done. And then providing atonement for our sin, which had not yet been done in the time of David. David and the Old Testament people were part of that kingdom, but it did not come except by way of promise until Jesus came. Because the kingdom was not yet righteous until he came. So yours is the kingdom, you see. Knowing that God's is the kingdom gives us tremendous encouragement. That's why Jesus was able to tell his disciples that now whatever you ask in my name will be done for you. He said that up until now, when he, told them, when he had told them this that as he was speaking to them, that they had not asked for anything in his name. But now they would do that and they would be heard. The kingdom is actually the kingdom of the Son of God. and The Father always hears him. See, we're asking for things in his name. You know, I've used the illustration with you before. If, a, if you send your, your child over to the next door neighbor to borrow a cup of sugar or something, and, and the kid goes and says, oh, can I have some sugar? People say, well, what do you want it for? If they come over and say, my mom wants some sugar, go in her name. And they, oh, here. And they give it to them. So uh, it, it changes things when you come in the name of someone who has authority. We're asking for things for Christ. God will not turn away his son. He will bring all the blessings that he has promised. You can pray confidently for those blessings. He will gather all the people that he has given to Christ. Not one will be lost, Jesus said. He will give us all that we need for life and godliness. He will overcome all the enemies of his kingdom, every single one of them. And he will keep us, the the enemies that keep us from serving God. It is God's own kingdom. It is the kingdom of the Son of God. Now, power. Power also belongs to God. Thus we say, yours is the power. God is sovereign. As we saw in the preface to the Lord's Prayer, He is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. His authority is unlimited. It is ultimately His plan that is fulfilled. We have the privilege of being tied in with the fulfillment of His plan by our prayers. You see, as we pray for the things that he said he's going to do, we're involved in actually bringing those things about. God wants us to want his purposes, his will to be done and to pray for it so that we might see his mighty hand. He doesn't want things to just happen and we say, oh, I wonder how that happened. Oh, that's nice that that happened. He wants us to be eagerly praying and seeking it. And then he brings it about and we say, yours is the power. He put his people in Egypt under bondage so that they would cry out to him. 
He deliberately raised up Pharaoh with great all authority and power in the earth in order that they might see the power of God in bringing him down. In 1 Chronicles 29, we noted that da- how David mentioned that God had given the people willing hearts to serve him. Where did the power come from to change someone's heart? Can you change your heart? Can you change yourself from one who is stubborn and rebellious and opposed to God to someone who wants to follow him? Who did that? That's the power of our Lord. We can pray that God will change our hearts and other people's hearts. When you see a cold heart for God in your own life, when you see a cold heart toward your spouse, or when you see cold heart toward your parents, your siblings, pray. Pray and ask God to change that. Instead of manipulating them, pray for them if their heart is cold. And for yourself, pray for yourself that you would have a changed heart. Indeed, this is how God works. The power is God's. He can change you and he can change others. Paul says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Think about that. The same power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead is working in us. Now, I'm serious about this because we really don't pray in faith about such things. Our prayers are often hindered because we really don't expect God to do great things for us. Sometimes we pray for salvation of people around us, and in doing so, we just pray that we'd have an opportunity to talk to them. Well, that's part of it. Well, why don't you pray that they'll come to saving faith? Is God able to do that? Jesus talks about being able to move mountains if our faith is like a mustard seed. When we come to church, do you come to church really looking for God to work in your life, to powerfully work in your life and in your children's life so that you're actually changed? Or you just come like whatever? We don't pray earnestly that God would work. We need to start doing that. When we evangelize, you see, we need, we, need to, we, we need to cry out to God to not only do individuals, but to, to, to reach many peoples. Jesus uh, says that no one will come to him unless the Father draws him. His disciples once asked him how anyone could be saved. And you remember what Jesus said? Things that are impossible with man are, are possible with God. Yours is the power. Psalm, 120, Psalm 110 says that his people, the people that he has chosen, will be made willing in the day of his power. That means that we need to pray. And then there is the third thing that Jesus says belongs to God. The glory belongs to God. We're to say when we pray, yours is the glory. Glory is where the catechism began, wasn't it? It's question one. I'm sure you remember that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The very purpose of all creation is to glorify God. An intelligent creation, human beings, are, their purpose is to glorify God. God made the heaven and the earth to display his wisdom and power, his kindness and justice, his holiness and beauty and grace and love. And who are the ones that appreciate that? The people who have an intelligence to know who God is and are made in his image and understand who he is. And guess what the purpose of redemption is? What is the purpose of redemption? Why does he save human beings who have rebelled against him, who have ruined themselves by corruption and sin? Why does he do it even when it meant sending his own son to die? It's because his is the glory. He did it for his own glory. Ephesians tells us that, that that was his purpose for his own glory. 
My brothers and sisters, when you come to truly know God's amazing love to us in Jesus Christ, when you see what a glorious, loving God he truly is, and how wrong you have been to believe Satan's slanderous lies about God, when you see what a pure and holy God he is who delights in truth and in righteousness, and yet who reaches out to call sinners to find life in Christ, when you really begin to see what a wonderful, glorious God he is, then you want nothing more than to see him glorified. You want everybody to know him. If you're sick, you pray, be glorified through my sickness. If you're rich or if you're poor, you say, be glorified through my riches or be glorified through my poverty or through being in the middle. Let me glorify you. Yours is the glory. If you are honored or persecuted, you pray that he would be glorified. It doesn't even matter whether you're rich or poor. It matters that God is glorified. That's why things happen. It doesn't matter whether you're successful or not successful. It matters that God is glorified. His glory is what you yearn for and what you crave when you realize that His is the glory. We don't realize it so well, but when you do, you can't wait for Jesus to appear at the end of the age. Why? Because His glory is going to be revealed and He'll be admired by all of those who have known Him. You know that all glory rightfully belongs to Him. All, glory, all other glory is derived glory. His is the essential, original glory. And you know and are glad that He will be glorified. That's when we'll be the happiest, when we see the glory of our God, the beatific vision. We will, we will delight in all that He is. And that's when, when you see that to be so, you start to pray with confidence that God will be glorified. It doesn't just become a secondary thing. You see that he will and that he ought to be, and then you start to pray for it. You pray that he will save his people, that he will conquer Satan, that he will change you and fill you with his fullness, that he will provide for you. You pray that all the things in the Lord's Prayer fervently because they bring glory to him when they're answered. The glory is all his. It belongs to him. Do you see how recognizing that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory gives you confidence in your prayers? It motivates you, how it stimulates you to pray. You are praying for what belongs to God and what God has committed to accomplish. You want what God wants, and you know that he will hear you when you ask. And so, in testimony, as our catechism says, of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. Okay, we want this. We want him to be glorified. We want him, his power and kingdom. So, uh, do you know what the word amen means? It's actually a Hebrew word. The core idea of the root of that word, amen, amen, is uh, that which is sure. It's translated by many different English words, but it always has to do with certainty. It's often used to describe God himself as faithful and true. For example, in Deuteronomy 32.4, it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth. A God of amen. And without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Isaiah 49.7, we read, The Lord who is faithful. Amen is the word that's used there. And Psalm 89, we praise God for his faithfulness with this word. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. 
with my mouth I will make known your amen, your faithfulness to all generations. Things associated with God are also amen. His testimonies and precepts are said to be sure. Guess what word that is? Amen. Psalm 19, 7. Isaiah 55, 3. His covenant promises are referred to as the sure mercies of David. The amen mercies of David. God's people are also sometimes referred to as faithful or true. For example, the Lord says of Moses, Not so with my servant Moses, for he is amen, faithful in all of my house. He is true. He is sure. You see, all all of those ideas come out. And above all, who is the amen of God? Jesus, God's son. Revelation 3.14 says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the amen. And then it, it defines that, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So the core meaning of the word amen is true, certain, and faithful. But of course, as you know, the word amen also serves a liturgical function. We are familiar with this Hebrew word because we use it in English to close our prayers. And it's used in a lot of other languages as well. It is here at the close of the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Lord teaches us to use it at the end of our prayers. We find it used in the Old Testament worship by the congregation. For example, you remember when the curses and the blessings were pronounced on the people in Deuteronomy 27 as they entered the promised land? They were to respond to each of those with amen, as if to say, truly, or so it is, it is so, that sort of thing. It was used to express agreement when God's name was blessed. For example, in 1 Chronicles 16, 36, the whole congregation used it. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And the people said, amen, and praised the Lord. It's used in each of the benedictions that separate the five books into which the Psalms are divided that I spoke about earlier. For example, Psalm 41, 13, it says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting Amen and amen. It's like saying certainly and certainly or truly and truly or it is so, it is so. We also find the word amen in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Paul says of the, speaks of the amen as the customary response. And I want you to hear this. We talked about this before. The customary response of God's people to corporate prayers of the church. He asked how an uninformed person can say amen to your prayers if you're praying in tongues. But you see, the point that I'm making, not about tongues here so much, but the point I'm making is that the amen was a customary response and they weren't able to say it if they didn't know what you said. He cannot express his acquiescence with the prayer if he doesn't understand. So a few years ago, the elders encouraged us in our congregation to say the corporate amen at the end of our prayers. There were a lot of, a lot of the early church did this, and a lot of 
Some of the Reformed churches restored this, but somehow it's fallen out of usage. And it is an appropriate and proper response when the corporate prayers are offered up in the assembly of God's people to say amen in response to those prayers. It's a scriptural practice to do it corporately. Sometimes people will say amens individually. Well, when we're here, we're not individually expressing, but we're together coming together and corporately we're saying amen before the Lord our God to the, uh, in response to the benediction, in response to the prayers and blessings and things of the Lord. We do it as a body. But what are we doing when we do that, when we say amen at the end of a prayer? When it is a prayer in which we're asking God to do something, we're basically saying, may it be so. We're agreeing with what has been prayed and affirming that that is truly what we want. Now, that's a sobering thing. When you say amen, you're making a kind of vow that what has been prayed is what you want to happen. So I pray that God's people would be sanctified and made holy. And you say amen and you don't care about being holy. Then you just made a false vow. You affirm something and you've got no interest in it. So you see, there's a, there's, a, there's a solemnity about this. Be careful that you don't take the name of God in vain when you say amen. You say, God, do whatever is necessary to make us holy. Oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to say amen to that. It's a solemn attestation before His holy majesty. And when it is a blessing upon God that has been spoken rather than a request, we're basically saying it is so. It is true. I affirm, I believe that, I, rather than may it be so when it's a request. You know, we have that with our vows of membership. We have the ones that we're affirming what we believe, the first three, and then we have the ones that we're promising what we will do. And so there's that kind of distinction. So this is what we say in part then at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Having said, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, we're saying it is true. It is God's kingdom. It is His power. It is His glory. Do you believe that? Or is it your glory that you're about? It is true, and I'm glad that it's true is what you're saying. I want it to be true. But having also lifted up our prayers before that, okay, the prayers, the petitions that we made before that, we're also saying, may all these prayers be so, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So we're affirming, as David did, that because God has all sovereignty and power and glory, then we're confident that he will do what we have requested in our prayers. It is a sure affirmation of confidence. So what a suitable way this is for the catechism to end. Having seen over the course of these past 32 months all that the Lord has done for us and all that he has called us to be, we conclude with instruction that we are to pray to him that it all may be so, that by His sovereign grace and glorious power, we may see a fulfillment of all that He has called us to be as His people. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yours, o, your kingdom come, your will be done, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Truly and truly may it be so. Please stand and let's call on the name of our Lord. O Lord, we come before you with awe.
because you are a holy and a majestic God. You are the creator of all things and the ruler of all things. You are sovereign and you do whatever your, fa- your hand finds to do. We praise you, O Lord, that your plan is being opened before our eyes every day. We thank you and praise you, O Lord, that your glory is revealed through your works. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to delight in your kingdom because it is your kingdom. It is a kingdom of righteousness that you have established. And now you yourself have become the chief member of that kingdom through our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we praise you that he has become a partaker of our flesh, that we might become partakers of him and his salvation. And we pray, O Lord, that we would delight in the fact that it's not our kingdom, but it's his kingdom. We don't want to run this kingdom, to control this kingdom, though in our sin we may. But Father, we know that it is much better for him to be the one who is the kingdom. And we praise you, Lord, that yours is the power. You have all power to bring about your purposes and you will bring them about. Father, when we think about even death being abolished, how can we fear, O Lord? For yours is the greatness and the power. And Father, we also recognize that yours is the glory. We want you to receive all the honor for everything that happens, O Lord. We want you to be known for who you are. We want you to reveal your majesty. Father, we are very dull in what we know of you and we want to know more. So we look to you, Lord. Our eyes are toward you to to make your glory known in all of the earth. We praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have that you will do these things. And so, Lord, we we affirm that that uh, that indeed yours is the the kingdom and the power and the glory. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the greatness and the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God and respond to the blessing of the Lord with the corporate amen if you so receive that blessing. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he grant you according to your heart's desire. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Amen.